90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty well. Broke a lot of records this weekend. Had a nice field day where it was 90-something degrees. Yeah, it was, it's been very warm. I know a lot of places are breaking their temperature records. We had crazy windstorms here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's been an eventful weather week. It has been. It definitely has been. Um, students definitely learned that they don't understand Brunton compasses because I made them take over like 200 strike and dips this weekend. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, and stay out in the field for, you know, six solid hours. So they were all very tired. Well, at least it's not like, you know, when we were doing this, at least if the weather was like it was when I did it when you took it, it was drizzly, cold, miserable. I know. Yeah, it was unbelievable. We had tons of sunburns. People ran out of water. It was crazy because it's, you know, February. Wow. (laughs) But what's up with you? Oh, nothing, you know, just defending. Big deal, right? Yeah. No. uh, (laughs) If you're listening to this show the morning it comes out, there's a good chance that I'm defending while you're listening. Uh, (laughs) Defending Friday at 9 Eastern. And believe it or not, it's actually going to be live streamed on Facebook. So there you go. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Wow. That's impressive. (laughs) (laughs) I knew you'd get a kick out of that. Yeah, that's pretty good. You know, I guess I, I was thinking about the XKCD comic of the best defense is a good offense, and it shows somebody <laughs> rushing their committee uh, with oh. a sword from their presentation deck. <laughs> oh, man. I, I put in mind my first slide that stayed up there, you know, while everyone was milling about, was uh, the origin of the thesis from the PhD comics. <laughs> You're not going to believe this. That's what I have as the first slide in my deck right now. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. somehow i do believe it but (laughs) yep uh that's the first slide and the second slide is the title slide which is slow slip things and (laughs) then my third slide is the title slide but it's my alternate title slide and i love alternate titles as you know (laughs) yep (laughs) Uh, and it is (laughs) All right, so the slide reads, Laboratory Studies of Fault Stability in Slow Earthquakes, colon, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Biax. <laughs> oh. And then the picture disappears and Dr. Strangelove is there. I did the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Except it was How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Paleomagnetism. That's exactly what it said. <laughs> Not kidding you. Well, we learned why we do a podcast together. Wow. That is hysterical. <laughs> did you have the picture of Dr. Strangelove? I did not. I didn't go oh, okay. that far. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I would have, but I didn't want to see those blank looks like I do in class when I make Ferris Bueller comments and no one has any clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> At least the committee will chuckle. Yeah, that is true. They were. I, I was trying enough. to work some way in, you know, in the movie when they say, gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. <laughs> I was trying to work something like that in, but I could never get it to work right. Well, uh, you probably could for the after part where they kick everyone out and then fight with you. So make sure you've got that on, on hand for that situation. Oh, yes. That's a good idea. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> but so that's what I'm going to be doing while you're listening to this, maybe. Uh, <laughs> but we do have some feedback that I want to go before we actually dig further into my dissertation, which seems like an odd topic for the show well i mean it is science right so it's not that odd enough it's not that odd topic (laughs) but first of all we got some pictures from mitch who sent us the books on skeleton articulation Mm -hmm. which are super awesome by the way mitch these are great books yeah the illustrations are wonderful yeah Uh, and this is some pictures from a class that he took with the author and they're articulating a beluga whale skeleton which is awesome. Yeah, and it actually looks pretty fun. Like, they're drilling holes in some of the bones and putting them on. I'm not sure what material it is exactly that they're suspending it. I haven't read that in the in the manual yet. Yeah. But, no, it looks like it was probably a pretty fun project, and I'm guessing it took quite a while, even though there were quite a few people there working on it. Uh, yes, because it's a whale, so there's a lot of bones. 
Exactly. <laughs> um, which is very interesting. And right down the road from me, there is the Museum of Osteology, which is super scary and super awesome at the same time. <laughs> and it really is. It's just this big shop. This guy had a bone shop and he started this museum and now it's a really huge deal. Um, but the best part is if you go to the Museum of Osteology, and this is in Moore, Oklahoma, uh, on their webpage, they have their staff, right? Like anyone else does probably, except one of the staff members are the bugs. And you can take in any skeleton and these little flesh-eating bugs, they'll sit the skeleton in there and the flesh-eating bugs will take care of all the gross parts on it for you. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and they're listed as a staff member, which is fantastic. <laughs> uh, I noticed in the in the books, and when it's talking about preparing the skeleton, mm -hmm. you know, there are multiple ways that you can do this. So there, there are bugs. Uh, one of the methods was to seal it with a bunch of water in a tub and bury it, basically, uh -huh. uh, so that you get all of the flesh to come off the bone. And it said to uh, that this would smell some and to make sure you did it when you were upwind. <laughs> and maybe not in a neighborhood <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> Some interesting phone calls associated with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then you have to explain, oh, no, that was just a decomposing skeleton. <laughs> not that kind. <laughs> not that kind, yes. <laughs> oh, wait. No, it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lots of bad things could happen. I'd just pay this museum to uh, do it for you. <laughs> yeah. No, it seems like it'd be something pretty interesting oh, to do cool. sometime, but you need a a nice, big, interesting skeleton to work on. Yeah, I agree. I've got a bunch of cow heads that we found in the field before, but that's not as, not as cool as those blue whale pictures. Right. Uh, another piece of feedback that we had from listener Steve, uh, I thought he had an interesting thing that he did while he was driving. We we were talking about zero and one indexing mm -hmm. and it brought up this idea that he had when he was on the road. He said he was bored during a road trip and when people would pass him, he was wondering how fast they were going and he says, no longer bored. I camp with a way to estimate their speed. So I'm just going to read you verbatim what he says here. Yeah. It's pretty easy. Say you are going 70 miles per hour and somebody whizzes by. Wait 70 seconds, make a mental mark of where they've gotten to and note the time again when you reach the same spot. Let's say it was another three seconds. So the elapsed time was 10 seconds. It took you 10 seconds to do the same distance they did in seven. So they are going 10 sevenths of your speed. Since your speed is 70 miles an hour, their speed is 100. So he says you count at a steady rate and it of course works in kilometers per hour, whatever you want to do. It's awesome. And it starts with zero. When they are by you, it's zero. That was how this all connected. Uh, I'm not going to need all these podcasts to um, keep me entertained on these long drives anymore after this trick. No, I've tried it a couple times on the way to work, and it is pretty entertaining. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and Steve also points out, uh, of course, this works just as well in metric units with values that are bigger. So maybe you can count a little faster, he says. <laughs> Right, one Mississippi, two Mississippi might exactly <laughs> might not do so much. Yep. <laughs> um, and he also said thanks for the piece on ice circles. So, absolutely, we thought it was very interesting as well. Yes, yeah, it was. <laughs> that was a fun show. Yeah, but okay. So this week, since I'm going to be defending, which means I didn't have a lot of time to prepare special show notes. <laughs> These seem, these seem pretty special, John. It is what you've been working on for the past five years, right? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's true. <laughs> you keep downplaying it, but... <laughs> I, I thought I would write up a quick outline of the general idea of what I spent the last five years doing. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool, everybody. It'll only take 20 minutes or so. <laughs> it's true. It's not going to be the technical 45-minute talk that... Well, let's just say when I started putting the talk together, I had about 200 slides that I could choose from. Ah. Uh. So I had to pare it down to, you know, below 60. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. the I thought it was interesting that a lot of times when you go to people's thesis or dissertation presentations, they say, okay, here's what I did. First, we did this. And then, and then there's this project and it fed into this so nicely. And it all looks like they had this really nice, ordered, well-thought-out line of investigation. 
and it all worked out, and there's this nice bow on it on the end. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. And that's never how it actually worked. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> that's never how it actually went down. It's like tracing a drunken ant way back home or something like that. <laughs> right, and we present it like that because, well, that's how it's logical. It mm-hmm. Nobody wants to sit there and hear about this path that you went down for six months that turned out to be an equipment malfunction. Exactly. The or tr- a red herring. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Or a math error. Oh, that's a terrifying one right there. Yeah. So we, we do this reordering so that it makes a nice story and things flow well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's really a lot messier. So I thought since on friday when this airs i'm going to be telling the nice version today we'd tell the messy version (laughs) it's gonna this is gonna be very cathartic for you because it's good to get this uh get this off your chest (laughs) (laughs) well i also just think it's kind of funny how coincidences drastically altered the course of this dissertation (laughs) always Mm -hmm. yes so the first thing i did when i got to penn state was i have always been interested in electromagnetic phenomena like RF emissions from natural processes. Mm-hmm. And that's actually what my first paper was on, is RF emissions from supercell super thunderstorms. Okay. So when I got to Penn State, it turns out that my advisor had been talked to by somebody that was interested in electromagnetic anomalies that occurred during earthquakes. Which is right up your alley, right? Which was right up my alley. And you get all these weird phenomena. The, the one that most people have heard about or are familiar with are earthquake lights. Have you heard about these? Uh, yeah, my parents used to live on, uh, out in North Carolina, out on the edge of the swamp and they'd see the swamp gas lights. So I've read about a bunch of these weird EM light things just because they're creepy. (laughs) Yeah. And there's some really great video from the New Zealand earthquake, uh, back in, was it June, July that had earthquake lights associated with it. Uh, so these are pretty well documented that they've occurred. Mm -hmm. Uh, during some large earthquakes, but nobody really knows what the process that generates the electricity is or how it gets to the surface or what exactly is making the lights. Right. So we thought this would be an interesting project. So how did you make earthquake lights in the lab? (laughs) Well, we used our big hydraulic press that I've talked about before. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's sort of like the hydraulic press channel, but more controlled on YouTube. And (laughs) we... Actually, just used glass beads as a simulant because we get these nice stick slip events that simulate earthquakes in the lab. And we would press them and generate little earthquakes. Did you get lights? (laughs) We didn't get actual light. I did try wrapping the entire machine in trash bags, turning the lights in the room out, and doing long exposure photography. (laughs) Awesome. And we didn't get lights. But we did have this sensor that was a non-contact electrostatic voltmeter. Mm-hmm. And so we would point that at our little fault in the lab, which was about four inches on the side, so not very big. Our earthquakes are about magnitude minus five or so. Oh, goodness. Okay. Yeah. Magnitudes Cute. do go negative. Uh, so. <laughs> Cute little earthquakes. <laughs> yes, they're tiny. <laughs> and lo and behold, we saw anomalies of up to hundreds of volts. No kidding. During these stick slips. And we came up with... All the hypotheses that were in the literature basically compiled them and said, what is feasible? Because okay. we didn't really have much insight into what the mechanism was. So, okay, first hypothesis, piezoelectricity. Nope, doesn't work. Crystals have to be aligned, and this is amorphous glass. So not buying yep, that. Not there. So we're going down, checking off all these things. Turns out the only hypothesis in the literature that we couldn't check off is one that's kind of a semiconductor effect. It has to do with propagation of electron holes and stressed rock. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it gets pretty deep into semiconductor-like physics. But, unfortunately, it's not very well accepted by the community. Oh, okay. And, yeah. mm-hmm. granted, there's not a lot of evidence. What our paper said was, look, it's the only thing we can't rule out. There's gotcha. a good possibility it could be something entirely different, but we cannot rule this one out with this data. Gotcha. That did not receive a warm welcome. <laughs> you know, <laughs> neither did uh, play tectonics, and I'm just saying. 
Right. But so. the catch here is something like this is pretty hard to fund because it's got a long history of being associated with crazy, crazy. tales and people predicting earthquakes. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. But the reason that the collaborator that brought this all up to us in the first place was interested is he worked with pharmaceuticals a lot. And when you're packing powder into pills to market to people, you need to pack very accurate amounts. And as it turns out, you get all kinds of weird electromagnetic or electrostatic things that happen as this powder is shaking down into this machine. It can separate based on size. It can jam the machine, like adhering to it, electricity, all kinds of weird stuff. I guess I never thought about that, but obviously. Yeah, one of the one of the papers on this subject actually shows they took the same material, two different sizes of it, uh, dyed them, one red, one blue, mixed them together, and vibrated them down a chute, and at the end, they almost perfectly separated because <gasps> they were electrostatically repelled, oh, because awesome. so much charge had been transferred. Yeah, so this was causing a problem in this industry. Uh, and we said, okay, well, sure, we'll send us some pharmaceutical stuff and we'll share it and see what we get. And they just laughed because <laughs> they don't ship large bags of pharmaceutical. You know, they're used to dealing with milligrams or maybe grams of things. And right. our samples are hundreds of grams. Well, plus, you don't want something arriving that looks like a brick of cocaine at your lab either. <laughs> right. Uh, but they said, hey... We use baking flour as a simulant a lot of the time. Turns out it has a lot of very similar properties. Okay. So I said, okay. I went to Walmart and I bought a bag of gold metal flour <laughs> and took it back to the lab and crushed it. Uh, <laughs> uh, these are some pretty cool pictures. I remember you doing this. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it, it did shear. It did generate electrostatic charge. Mm-hmm. They were very happy with that data. We moved on. But also, instead of being fast stick slips, like the glass beads and like most of the other things that we did in the lab were, mm -hmm. where you hear like bang, 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 these were very slow. The, the little earthquakes we would generate would last a couple of seconds sometimes. Wow. And okay. for a sample that's four inches on a side, that's forever. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of like a slow earthquake, which we've talked about before with Laura Wallace, mm -hmm. in the lab, which had been really hard to do before. Only certain materials with springs and all kinds of weird setups have been able to do it. That's kind of awesome, though. Yeah. So that became, you know, ooh, shiny. And <laughs> we, we went down this path of trying to figure out what was going on. Well, and it turns out, because of a lot of things about frictional theory, uh, you need a certain stiffness of the system to get things to be stable or unstable or sort of stable, slow slipping. Okay. And so we started playing with the stiffness of the system by changing pieces of our loading configuration out. So we had steel, titanium, and acrylic. Okay. Uh, you know, different stiffnesses, and we would like put things in line and try to, okay, now we'll de-stiffen the machine some and see what happens. And uh, we ended up publishing it, believe it or not. <laughs> So a paper relating to earthquakes, but with flour as <laughs> our analog material. Which, I mean, could be problematic because that's not a rock. I mean, if you share Oklahoma, there's a lot of wheat. <laughs> Practically the same thing. <laughs> Practically the same thing. Uh, I mean, from the, a physics... the, the earthquakes are getting shallower, so. <laughs> right. But from a physics standpoint, right, it's just a material. Right. And this is what I say over and over again, is physics should work the same everywhere if we have the right physics. <laughs> so I don't care if it's under an ice sheet. I don't care if it's uh, a subducting plate. I don't care if it's baking flour. Physics is physics. It's true. But as you can imagine, there are lots of people saying, well, that's a cool parlor trick. Uh, yeah. Do it with rock. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. We do like, you know, sort of approximations. Right. But you, you are correct. Unless this was a little bit physics. of a stretch. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So then we started using this material called Minucil. I don't know what this is. So Minucil is crushed up silicon dioxide. Okay. So glass. So glass. <laughs> it's 
10 microns mean grain size, somewhere in there. Tiny, uh, tiny glass. Okay. It, it looks like baking flour. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> except it will give you silicosis, which baking flour won't do. <laughs> so don't snort it. Mm-hmm, gotcha. So don't breathe it. Yes. Uh, and I said, hey, this is a geologic material. It's sort of like quartz. Yeah. It's closer, right? It is closer. That is absolutely true. <laughs> yes. And so we we put some in the machine and we sheared it and it slow slipped and there was much rejoicing. And then I think there was a break or something happened. Anyway, we didn't get back to this project for quite a while in the lab. I started doing some modeling, trying to figure out what was going on with all this stuff. And several months later, we came back and tried to do it again and our worst nightmare realized we couldn't. Oh, uh, <laughs> not cool. <laughs> yeah. So the idea is we need to be able to generate systematic reproducible results, right? Yes. Yes. That's how science best works. <laughs> yes. So we try doing it over and over until it's just insanity. Mm-hmm. And we start thinking of variables we could control things that we hadn't controlled for. Uh, it turns out the relative humidity in the lab is really important for the healing rate of glass. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Which, is that something that you frequently monitor? Uh, there had been a paper in the past that showed that the relative humidity could change the amplitude of stick-slip events. So we always wrote it down. That's the only way we figured it out. Ah, okay. Uh it's one of those things where even if you don't think it's important, like the weather in your field notebook, write it down. Yeah, exactly. That's really lucky <laughs> because that is not something that, you know, you would really think about your lab conditions because you worried so much about the experimental conditions, right? Yes. So and <laughs> so eventually we figured out that need to be high relative humidity, below a certain percent relative humidity, like 55% or so, uh, healing kind of shut off. No kidding. It, yeah. Okay, so now we can control for that. We're running everything at 100% relative humidity. And we started trying to get some kind of systematic behavior. So how can we change how stiff our system appears? And how can we get systematics of faults being stable or unstable or slow slipping? Mm-hmm. Now, here I feel like we should take a step back. Because what is stiffness? I mean... When my students wake up in the morning after being in the field for six hours. <laughs> that's, that's what I got right now. <laughs> right. Well, so it's a force over a displacement. Right. So if you have a spring yep. and it obeys Hooke's law, if you stretch it one inch, it'll take so much force to do that. If you stretch it two inches, it'll take twice as much force. Okay. All right. And believe it or not, rocks are springs. Physics uh, is physics. No matter what you're physics talking is about. physics. <laughs> Rocks are just really stiff springs. Yep. Mm-hmm. We've got a video. I've got a video on YouTube uh, showing some examples of this, and I'll link it in the show notes. But you can actually pick up a cube of granite, squeeze it, and measure how much you're forming it. Uh, didn't you build something to do that with? Actually, I did. It was a cool <laughs> demo. Uh, <laughs> you when you pick up this was about two inches on a side cube. Uh, you pick it up, squeeze it. That's fifty millimeters, and it shortens maybe about a 20th the width of a hair but still yeah but it shortens and it rebounds it's just like a spring awesome and we've talked about before that's where the energy for earthquakes is stored is in stretched or compressed rocks okay yeah that makes sense right well in the lab the way i change the stiffness is like we said before putting things like chunks of acrylic in between my hydraulic ram and my fault because that de-stiffens it Okay. Right? Yeah. Okay. Well, theory says that if you get very compliant and you have a certain type of material that we'll talk about, then you can get earthquakes. And if you're stiff, then you don't get earthquakes. You just slide like you're pulling something along the countertop. Okay. The key to this is that friction is weird. And, (laughs) you know, we're taught in high school that there's... Well, there's friction, and maybe that there's static and dynamic friction, right? Mm-hmm. So there's some friction when something's sitting on the table, and once you get it moving, there's another coefficient of friction that's generally a little lower. Mm-hmm. That's not the full story. <laughs> you said Did, physics was physics, John. 
<laughs> it is. But did you learn about rate and state friction? No. See, we actually talked about this when I took structure. Oh, wow. No, no. We were busy on bigger structures. So we didn't talk a lot about microstructure stuff. Okay. Yeah. So the idea with rate and state friction is actually pretty cool. It's that the frictional coefficient of a material is dependent on the velocity at which it's moving. Okay. So some materials, as you try to pull them faster and faster, the friction goes up and it takes more and more force to do it. Okay. And we call those velocity strengthening materials. Some materials, as you push them or pull them faster and faster, they get weaker and easier to push or pull. Okay. Mm -hmm. Those are velocity weakening. Seems like there as should you... be a vast amount of knowledge on the empirical you know, evidence of this, right? Oh, there is. There's tons. And it's not just something that rock mechanics folks made up. Okay. Uh, this affects tons of things in engineering. Uh, some of the people that are very interested in this include tool makers and machinists because they don't want to get chatter on their tools. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Tool chatter is stick slip. It is a tiny earthquake. It occurs for the same reason as the big ones. Yeah. Uh, Another group of people that really cares about velocity-dependent friction are printer manufacturers. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Makes total I, sense, again. It's, it's why I have a picture of the guy in office space yelling at the printer <laughs> in my presentation. Oh, because beautiful. you don't want pages sticking together, so you have to know how the friction between pages and the friction between pages and rollers and so on changes. That is awesome. doesn't always work. Right. <laughs> and, and think about one variable that could potentially change when your printer jams. Um, God, I, what do you mean? Heat? Humidity. No, I don't want to talk about that. That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to stick with heat. <laughs> right. Anyway. So, That's so weird. Yeah, so, it, I mean, robotics, all kinds of stuff. Hmm. But the idea is, for there to be an earthquake... You need to have something that gets weaker the faster it goes. Okay. Right? If it gets stronger the faster it goes, it's just going to stop whatever kind of rupture you get. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not enough. It has to get weaker faster than the system can dump energy into it. Right. So think about you've got some kind of stretch spring and an earthquake starts or paper sliding or tools are chattering, and you're pulling energy out of that spring. You have to be able to dump energy in yeah very fast right <laughs> yes <laughs> but you have to get weak faster <laughs> right. otherwise eventually <laughs> otherwise eventually you've dumped so much energy in that now the uh the system is stronger than your spring the amount of energy left in your spring and you just slide yeah okay. okay so you have to be velocity weakening and you have to be pretty compliant not very stiff mm -hmm. uh, which for rocks that could mean cracked rocks all kinds of stuff mm-hmm Anyway, so we did that in the lab and showed that there's all kinds of fun systematics about size of earthquake, duration of earthquake, with the stiffness thing. Okay. That was another paper. <laughs> then we made the uh, arguably mistake of <laughs> uh, going a step further and changing the speed at which we were doing all these experiments. Just for funsies? Just because we were curious what would happen. Okay. There's a, lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that goes on with velocity that's kind of strange. Uh, so we've been running all these experiments at a given velocity, 10 microns per second, and changing the stiffness. So we said, what happens if we go at like 3, 100, and 300? Sure, why not? Mm -hmm. So we did this, and the results were very similar. You know, we could change whether we were stable or creating earthquakes or creating slow slips, but they shifted and the shift was based on the velocity. Okay. So now we're talking about the velocity dependence of the velocity dependence of friction. Okay. Yeah. That's why I said it may have been a mistake to go down that route. Drunken ants. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, unfortunately, the, the conclusion there, to make it short, was 
uh, we can either confirm or deny the existence of this. <laughs> Great. It's very feasible. It's a very good explanation from a physics standpoint. The data is just a little too noisy to say. And you got to remember, when I say the data is a little too noisy to say, we're getting friction values that are consistent out in the fourth and fifth decimal place. Jeez. Uh, I don't know if you can do that. <laughs> it's tiny, tiny changes. Changes of well under a percent can make a huge difference in this kind of situation. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. So the last bit <laughs> that we did, uh, which started out as a side project. <laughs> Always. Always. It was uh, my second proposal for my candidacy exam, mm. which is normally one that shows that you could do something in a different field and then you never do it. It's just a thought exercise. You make this proposal. <laughs> I made this proposal and everybody said, that's actually kind of a good idea. We should do it. And we did. <laughs> Great. And it was looking at a place that slow slips in nature. And this proposal was written long before we were deep into slow slip land. Okay. So you're not lab. talking about New Zealand? <laughs> no. No, we're talking about Antarctica. Yay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so glaciers? Glaciers, yes. Uh, Willen's Ice Stream on the Sipel Coast mm-hmm. is a pretty cool place because if you were to put out a marker, you know, draw your big X on the surface, and then come back next year and see where your X is, it would be something like six to 800 meters downstream. Wow, that's no joke. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's fast. (laughs) Yes, the ice is screaming towards the coast. Wow. Because out of the interior of Antarctica, 90% of the accumulation inside gets discharged through 10% of the coast area Whoa. in these ice streams. Oh, I did not know that at all. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. But you think of it, uh, Richard Alley at Penn State has this great metaphor that it's like you're squirting pancake batter on a hot plate. Okay. And so you're putting snow in the center of the, the continent and ice flows. You know, If you squirt the batter, it doesn't just make a big dome. It flows yeah. out to make this nice close to flat surface. That's what ice does. You're dumping snow in the middle. It flows out towards the sides, trying to make the surface flat. Yep. Okay. Makes sense. Right. Wow. And uh, I said it would be really interesting to get some samples of the till, which we've talked about before, or the dirt that this glacier is sliding on, because this particular glacier slides in a stick-slip fashion. Twice a day, it has a little earthquake. Huh. Wow. That's convenient. If, if you put a GPS on it, you see these little step functions in the time series. It sits there for about 12 hours, and then over the course of 30 minutes, it'll slide somewhere between a half a meter and a meter. You're kidding. Yep. And then it will stop. And then 12 hours later, it'll do it again. Oh, Sometimes it's 24 hours, and it slides twice as far. No doubt. That's impressive. That's really cool. Yeah. So these are little slow slip events. And they're great because the slow slip events like we talked about with Laura are occurring kilometers below the surface in a subduction or below a subduction trench underwater under lots of rock. This is occurring under about a thousand meters of ice. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Which sounds like a lot, but compared to tens of kilometers of rock, it's nothing. Nothing. Yeah, exactly. So I said it would be really cool to get some hands on samples and test them and see what what they're made out of, what their properties are. Can we come up with some kind of coherent story from what we know in the lab to to do this? Yeah. Um, Well, it turns out that when I was less than one year old, a group of scientists drilled through the ice with a hot water drill. Mm Mm-hmm. And collected core samples. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this hot water drill is amazing. It is a supercharged, almost boiling water power washer that squirts out of a huge aluminum nozzle, and they use it to melt through a kilometer of ice. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And they got these samples, did some tests, and then the extra samples went into storage and hadn't been heard from since. Mm-hmm. 
So we were able to locate the samples. We did a bunch of tests on them in the lab and came up with a plausible idea of what could be going on and how the system could be slow slipping. And it connected very nicely to the story that we painted with stiffness. Nice. But as you can see, <laughs> these were generally, so it started out with electrical stuff that then we had a reason because of that to play with flour that led us into slow slip, which ended up being two chapters. And then the side project that happened to be interested about this interesting ice stream in Antarctica tied in really nicely at the end. That's beautiful. Convoluted, but beautiful. Convoluted, very twisty path. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the end, it worked out pretty well. No, that's great. And really, 45 minutes? You think you can do that? Uh, no, we're, we're totally skipping two chapters other than on one slide to say... I did these things, but we're not going to talk about that. Okay. <laughs> uh, and we're not even touching the appendices. There's A through G. <laughs> That's impressive. But yeah, no, it, it's going to be a relatively short presentation because I don't want to, to bore people and probably not talk about it much more in here cause for the same reason. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, you pour, you know, five years of your life into all this and... Um... Yeah, you got to condense it to like half an hour so people don't fall asleep. It's sort of yeah. um, demoralizing, but don't let it get you down. <laughs> oh, no. And, you know, I, I guess the end story of it all was I worked on a lot of different things and was lucky in the fact that I was able to connect them. Uh, stumbled onto an interesting way to do something in the lab and then chased that rabbit for several years. Mm -hmm. and made some in-depth studies on it. But the thing I wanted to stress is here are the skills that I thought were essential for doing this. And I'm going to say that this is in order of importance. Math, physics, engineering, stubbornness, perseverance, and geology. <laughs> I want to say this makes me sad, but... No, this probably pretty much sums you up. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, the first ones and the last one, you could interchange those. Like, I know geology was very important to what you did. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, but it's the same thing, though. Math and physics are math and physics, no matter what you're using them on. So you kind of have to have that fundamental understanding, right? Exactly, and you have to be stubborn because the first 10 times you try this, it's not going to work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and just stick with it because one of those times it will and then you'll figure out it's because of the humidity in the lab. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, I guess that's the other message is write down everything. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> there's not too much data. <laughs> I had a bagel for breakfast this morning and then... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you never know. You never know. No, you don't. And also back everything up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll link to that show notes. I was going to say the other one of your passions. <laughs> right. <laughs> Frequent backups. But there you go. That That's the condensed version of what I spent a long time working on. That's great. That's great. I'm super excited to hear how it goes because I'm sure it will be fantastic. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. So in part of my effort to avoid working on the presentation for this, I think we should move to something I spent a lot of time on today. <laughs> Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought that was a really good segue because I think it's funny that you're trying to say, you know, you took your mind off of it by doing this, but it's exactly what you just said, right? Um, you can never have too much data, which is basically what this paper's about. <laughs> it's true. So this was sent in by listener Daryl, and we will link to a kind of a pop news story about it, as well as the paper, which is open access, so you can get the full PDF if you'd like. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is called, Could a Neuroscientist Understand a Microprocessor? by Jonas and Cording. Yeah, this was, um, this was a really big paper, and it was very weird and interesting. I, I love the approach I'm, of this paper. I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get two pages in before I thought, oh, man, John's already printed this off. He wants to carry it around with him. 
Uh, yeah, this is going to be one that I uh, bring up at lunch at work, yeah. you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what I figured. <laughs> so have you heard about all these big data initiatives? Yes. In mm-hmm. bioscience? Yeah. I mean, obviously, we pick a lot of bioscience papers because I think that is very interesting. And this is one of those big problems in science in general, right, is there's so much data. How can we make the best of it? Right, but the bioscientists want even more data yeah. <laughs> because they're trying to figure out how the brain works, so they want to be able to measure everything about everything all the time. Uh-huh, right, because, well, we'll get into why. <laughs> right, and then the idea is you pour this data into the top of some kind of machinery and turn the crank, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it will algorithmically analyze it and try to highlight areas of, let's say, the brain that are responsible for certain things. But it turns out that's really hard to do. <laughs> it turns out it's very hard to do. It's the field of connectomics. I, I swear this is a made up. Obviously, it's a made up word. Somebody made this word up. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and they approach it in this case by saying, we're going to look at a very simple brain, in quotes. Mm-hmm. The 6502 microprocessor. <laughs> and this bad boy is like Atari vintage processor yeah it actually it powered the atari it powered the apple one it powered the commodore 64 good old commodore Uh, 64 (laughs) it it should give you a warm fuzzy and (laughs) this this processor has a whopping 3510 transistors oh man enhancement mode transistors uh and i thought it was funny that they were saying they have a full net list which the electrical engineers is you know how everything is connected in a circuit Mm -hmm. uh or in biology a full connectome Uh, (laughs) connectome yeah (laughs) again (laughs) and enthusiasts have reverse engineered this processor down to a transistor connection accurate level and made an emulator for it so you can download this emulator you can run whatever software could run on a on a 6502 Mm mm-hmm and you can monitor every voltage at every junction. Which is why this guy was so good for this because they're trying because they have complete understanding of that circuit, unlike the brain. Right. And even this little circuit produced 1.5 gigabytes per second of information. That's impressive. Yeah. That's quite a bit. Yeah. It actually did stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> So I, I like their, their test subjects here. They, you know, when, when you put a person in some kind of test like this, put them in an fMRI machine or whatever you want to do, mm-hmm. you try to isolate them from external stimuli except one. And right. you know, you're showing them a picture or you're playing a sound or a smell or something like that. Mm-hmm. So Shannon, uh, what did they pick for the, the stimuli for the 6502? I love it so much. <laughs> So the three different <clears throat> behaviors were Donkey Kong, Space Invaders, and Pitfall. 1981 and 1978, respectively. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, this is just beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And so they would run these games just up, just through the boot up. They didn't actually play them. Yeah, right. And Well, I'm sure they did. Uh, and they made comparisons between life and... In vivo and in silico. <laughs> oh, this is beautiful. <laughs> Which, I mean, wasn't it, uh, yeah, it was Star Trek, yeah. the original series where they had the silicon-based life forms. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, they ran this, they collected all this data, and then they dumped it into the same machinery that we're using to analyze our brains and turn the crank to see what would happen. Mm-hmm. And it and, was pretty interesting. Yeah. It didn't turn out as well as I would expect it. Well, the results looked kind of like what you get for a brain. Mm-hmm. It said, hey, this area is really active when you're doing this. Mm-hmm. So if we're looking at a brain, we would say, all right, we know that area is responsible for this behavior. Uh, but as it turns out, all these transistors aren't responsible for a certain game, but the algorithm definitely picked out a patch of transistors and said, this is the space invader part of the brain. Ah, uh, yeah, uh-huh. 
Yeah. That's so that didn't of, work so well. Yeah. Yeah. And it did work well in some respects that it could group transistors. Uh, so it could actually start learning that, okay, all these transistors look like they're doing something similar. Okay, mm -hmm. maybe those are a data bus, as it turned out. Uh, or the arithmetic logic unit control. So it could pick out some features, but you remember we know how this device works. Right, so when exactly. we see that, we say, okay, yeah, that's, that's ALU. Um, not so in the brain. And in fact, you know, they had an interesting point in here that maybe we could guess at, if, if you just looked at this data, you didn't tell somebody what they were looking at. They could guess eventually, okay, maybe there's going to be some of these neurons or cells or transistors that add things. They're going to be adders. Mm -hmm. And then we, by process of elimination, we could kick out hypotheses until we had one remaining set. And that's how it works. But that's not so for the brain. Right. Because there's all that stuff that's happening interconnectedly all the time. Yeah, and, you know, the, the transistors have a well-defined deterministic function for what you put in, what you get out. Yeah. Neurons, not so much. <laughs> they can be affected by surrounding neurons. They have all kinds of weird activation functions. Humidity. They're not so nice. Humidity. Uh, yeah, humidity. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. D delay from toxins in the brain, whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so maybe this isn't necessarily the best thing. We have to be a little more cautious when we're interpreting our brain data. Right. They also did an experiment with lesions, right? Right. And so, I mean, that's just exactly what you were talking about earlier. You can basically turn one thing off and know exactly how everything else should react. Right. So in this case, it would be like there are these studies where people have a certain part of the brain that's damaged, say, in an accident and certain aspects of their behavior or thought processes change. So we make the conclusion that that part of the brain was responsible for that because it's no longer working. Right, exactly. So like the hippocampus and rats, they would alter, basically turn it off, and then the rats couldn't recognize things they should be able to recognize. So therefore, hippocampus has to do with recognition. Right. So in the processor, they would just cut off a few transistors and say, you no longer work. Mm -hmm. Well, all the games except one still booted. There's one uh, set of transistors they cut out where Donkey Kong would actually no longer boot. Right. So the obvious conclusion is that's the Donkey Kong transistor. Mm-hmm. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Which... Yeah. So that again, is not a perfect thing. Right. And I, I liked the, the visualizations in this paper, for one thing, are great. Yes. Because there's a lot of data. It's hard to visualize. They did an excellent job. People should go look at this paper yes. just for the graphs. Yep. I agree. Uh, mm -hmm. I knew that you would also be very excited about that. <laughs> right. Uh, but I think the message was just to be cautious with interpreting things. And, you know, we've talked about this before. You put stuff into an algorithm the algorithm runs. There's no guarantee that what comes out the other end means anything. All models are wrong. Some are useful. Right. <laughs> and I was interested to find that the reaction to this paper has been not necessarily positive. I don't uh, think that's very surprising, actually. No, but the refuting arguments were things like, that processor doesn't even come close to modeling the brain. Well, yeah, it's simpler. Duh. <laughs> and we can measure everything about it perfectly. Which was the okay. point. <laughs> let's, let's throw that argument out the window. Mm. Next argument was, well, that's a serial process. The brain is highly parallelized. Right, yeah. Again, that makes it more complex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I can see why people in connectomics might be slightly offended by this, but it the authors make it very clear, I thought, that the purpose was not to offend. It was to serve as a warning. Right. Um, nobody likes these cautionary tales sort of things, but they are very important. I mean, we read that parachute paper, which was obviously a joke about <laughs> um, <laughs> how, how these 
studies are conducted, but I mean, it's absolutely true. And I thought this was actually quite interesting and it's a useful thought experiment too. Yeah. Well, and some of the stuff that the algorithms did pull out, like, you know, they found clock signals, they yeah. found read, write signals through registers. Mm -hmm. So there are some good things, uh, that come out of these, but the idea is, you know, maybe next time you're looking at an fMRI scan, think about is, is that really a space invader transistor in there or not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, I thought this was a, a fantastic paper. It is a little bit long, but there's some videos online. There's tons of figures and it was actually a really easy read. Yes. Yeah. And there's a summary from the economist as well. <laughs> <laughs> about it right <laughs> so um yeah this is really interesting so we appreciate that daryl that was a good read yeah thanks that was a, that was a fun paper and actually connected really nicely to last week's paper where slime mold yes. was doing our calculations exactly weird yeah. stuff, man. <laughs> i don't know how many more of these biological computer business i can deal with but <laughs> i have to go back to those uh, christmas editions of bmj soon <laughs> yeah <laughs> well if you have an idea for a fun paper or anything like that, we would love to hear from you. We would also love it if you go to iTunes and write a review because it helps other people find out about the show because the more iTunes reviews and ratings that we have, the more people that we can get exposed to. And also tell all your friends about us. Don't forget, we have stickers. So send <laughs> us an email and we'll send you some to pass around the office. Uh, we, we sure do. So if you want um, to shamelessly beg for swag, you can do that. <laughs> At show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, you can always, we've had some really good Twitter conversations lately, and you can always find us there at geo underscore Lehman, at Shannon Doolin, and together we are at Don't Panic Geo. And we've had some really good conversations lately in our chat room, swung.rocks, and it's the Don't Panic channel. Yeah, there's been some cool talk about a geologic timeline project in there. So if that sounds intriguing, yeah. uh, go I've, check it out. I've gotten on some, some serious afternoons of just reading everybody's blogs <laughs> that they keep linking <laughs> yeah. in on there so keep it coming <laughs> and until next week remember don't panic it's not an exact science any opinions findings conclusions or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies 